everyone. I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. This is season three, and it's entitled Singing the Blues, and we're taking a journey through sort of the obscure Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. If you've just jumped into the podcast, season one was a year-long walk through the Gospel of John. Season two was a short season on the life of King David through some of the Psalms, and now we're into episode four about King Solomon's quest to uncover the meaning of life, or at least the meaning of his life. And so far, it's been a rocky road. So let's jump in. I'm going to be reading just the first portion of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. It's a poem on the rhythms of life. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. I must admit, I got a little stuck on this passage. My brain really couldn't put all this into perspective, mainly because I couldn't get past that very first phrase. There is a time for everything. That phrase was like an icy hill that I just couldn't get over. Every time I tried, I just slid back down to the bottom. I guess I need some kind of spiritual snow tires with studs. The rest of the poem through verse 8 beautifully describes the rhythms that are built into life in this world. And you can work your way through those dualities one by one on your own. I encourage you to do that, to think about them. I just want to think about the idea of time and how it relates to God's work in our lives. One of the things I like about living in the Northeast is the change of seasons, that we do have a rhythm, a flow to life, a change of pace that's in harmony with nature and the change of seasons. I mean, other parts of the world don't necessarily have that. I mean, if you live in Central America, I mean, there's still a rhythm. You still have seasons. There's hot, really hot, hotter than heck, and then rain. So I like the seasons or the rhythm of our seasons. Before I retired, I used to approach the fall season with a sense of fear and trepidation because I could almost feel this tidal wave of busyness and activity and stuff to do that was coming my way. I would look back over my summer calendar and there was a lot of blank space, not as many meetings or appointments or deadlines, and I was much freer, not as much pressure. I felt a little more relaxed. But as I looked ahead, I saw that the white space was filling up. Between September and Thanksgiving, there was this hold your breath, 
because here it comes kind of feeling. That there's a tsunami wave coming of things to do and schedules to manage, and that wave brings with it some serious anxiety. Because when that wave hits you, you can feel like you're going to be overwhelmed. Lose your balance, kind of get knocked off your feet. Have you ever felt that way about your time? Time. What we do with our time, how we look at our time, how we, how we see how time affects us is a spiritual issue. King Solomon isn't the only one to tell us this. The Apostle Paul wrote this to his Christians living in the city of Ephesus uh, almost 2,000 years ago. Chapter 5, verse 15. Be, wa- be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Other translations say, make the best use of your time, despite all the difficulties of these days, or use every chance you have to do good. Don't waste your time, because these are evil times. So make every minute count. Well, the people of Paul's day somehow must have struggled with their time. I guess people haven't changed all that much in 2,000 years, or 3,000 years if you go back to King Solomon. Obviously, many of the pressures were different. They don't have the emails and text messages to keep track of. They didn't have the benefits or the burdens of the many technologies that fill up so much of our time. And yet time was still an issue for Solomon and for the first century Christians who met in house churches in Asia Minor. There's a basic reality here, something that touches every single human being that has ever walked planet Earth. We all have exactly the same amount of time. We all have exactly the same amount of time, 24 hours in a day, 168 hours in a week, 8,760 hours in a year. Doesn't matter where you live, how much money you have in the bank, your race, your age, your gender, your lifestyle, your height, your weight, your career, your lack of employment. We all have exactly the same amount of time. Doesn't matter if you're married or single, whether you have six children or you're an empty nester. Doesn't matter if you're a bushman living in the Kalahari Desert or a businessman living in Beijing. Time is the one great equalizer. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. Time is inelastic. You can't stretch it. Nobody gets any more time or any less time than anyone else. God gives everyone the exact same amount of time every single day. I think that's one of the things Solomon wants us to realize. The time is a great equalizer. All the rhythms he described affect every person on the planet to some degree. All of these rhythms are realities of the human experience, the pleasant and the painful. So you should not be surprised to find yourself somewhere within the mix at various points of your life. The difference comes in what we do with our time, what we do with the season we are in. And make no mistake about it, we choose how we respond to the various rhythms. We choose how we fill up our time. We choose how we spend our time. And that's why time is a spiritual issue. How we fill up our time reflects what's going on on the inside. What we do with our time reflects the kind of relationship we have with Christ. If we don't see any time, if we don't see time as a serious spiritual issue, then our relationship with God and I think our relationship, uh, other important relationships, are going to begin to suffer. Let's face it, there's a lot of pressure on us on how to spend our time. One of the unique things about the human race is that there's something in our human nature that is drawn to speed, to do things faster than they've been done before, partially for the thrill of it, partially so that we can fit more into the time that we have. We race to be the fastest. We race with our feet, our airplanes, our cars, quicker internet. A number of years ago, I read an article about the death of a guy named Bill Warner. 
Bill Warner was the, he held the record for driving a motorcycle faster than any other human being on the planet. He was the first person to get, ever go over 300 miles per hour on a sit-up motorcycle. But he wasn't content with that. He was trying to break his own record, and he didn't make it. When his speed reached 285 miles per hour, the motorcycle started to shimmy. Just a little, back and forth, the shimmy quickly turned into a wobble, and before he could react, he lost control. The motorcycle zoomed off the track, crashed, and Bill Warner was killed. Same thing happened to Jessie Combs, who held the record for being the fastest woman on four wheels. She crashed and died in 2018, trying to beat her own land speed record. There's something in human beings that makes us want to go faster, that makes us believe that faster is better. I remember seeing a series of AT&T commercials a few years ago where a young host interviewed children from an elementary school classroom. The interview, uh, interviewer asked, which is better, faster or slower? Well, faster, of course. Every one of the kids said so. Only an idiot would want slower. Of course, AT&T was selling faster internet, but the kids didn't know that. Yet by age six or seven, they're already fully indoctrinated into our time addiction to try and do everything faster. Like the phrase made famous by the fighter pilot character played by Tom Cruise in the movie Top Gun, I feel the need for speed. Doesn't that describe the pressure put on us to accelerate into life? We've internalized that pressure. It's not just out there. It's inside us, inside the way we think, the way we evaluate ourselves. We should be doing this or that. We should be doing more. More camps, more sports, more activities uh, for the kids. We don't want them to miss out on anything. More stuff for the family, more stuff at church, the community, more weekends away, more, more, and double more. It's like, a, like an overstuffed suitcase. We keep trying to cram more and more in, even though the seams are bursting. But no matter how much we try to cram into our lives, there is always only ever going to be 24 hours in a day, 168 hours in a week. Nothing will change that. And that's when the motorcycle starts to wobble. I saw a pre-pandemic study that found that people who commute more than an hour each way to work every day, they experience greater levels of stress than the fighter pilots or riot police. No wonder people are opting for the chance to work from home. But even with that accommodation, people find new ways then to fill that time. And there's no doubt that when our lives are continually exposed to that kind of stress, we're more prone to anxiety, resentment, impatience, irritability. And conversely, there's a unique kind of pressure on retired people, which I am just beginning to understand. How are you going to fill up the hours of your day now that you're not riding the train or going to an office? How will you have value if you're not busy? When the phone doesn't ring, the texts and the emails stop and your opinion is no longer needed. What do you do with your time when the kids are all gone and the house is empty? That time gap produces its own kind of stress. And students, students today face increasingly pressure to, to do more, to pack more in, to pad that college application, to begin living this frantic lifestyle at an earlier and earlier age. And the pandemic has somehow only increased the sense of pressure and anxiety in kids. They are pressured by their parents, uh, to, pressured by their parents to kind of adopt the same kind of frenetic lifestyle that their parents have. The ones, the lifestyle they say that they hate. So it isn't any wonder that so many people turn to drugs or drinking or just kind of opt out to try and relieve the stress that they're under. So many college students do the same because they're not sure all the things that they've been so busy doing really matter in the long run. 
These issues with time and stress and anxiety, they affect everyone no matter what your age or situation. So how do we put these things together? First, that there's time for everything. And second, as the apostle says, make the most of your time. How do we do that? I think Solomon describes how to pivot away from a life anxious about time and find a better sense of balance in our lives. And to me, balance is really the key. I mean, I like being busy. I think clearer when I have deadlines. I get more done when there's a little bit of pressure on me to get things done. When I'm not busy, I tend to waste more time on trivial, unproductive things. It's like sand through my hand. So for me, it's not about having a placid life where I just sit in a comfy chair and put my feet up all day long. Solomon would tell us that there's a time for relaxation, sure, but there's also a time for work, to work hard, to be focused, and to make every minute count. The first pivot point is to recognize what I said a little earlier. Everyone has exactly the same amount of time. So stop making excuses by saying, I don't have enough time. Everybody has the exact same amount of time. So you have to take responsibility for how you're using your time. And we have to take responsibility to recognize what kind of season we're in. We have to own how we use and respond to the time and the season that we're in. No one's putting a gun to your head. No one pre-programs your schedule without your permission. You may not like the consequences if you don't do certain things, but it's still your option. You don't have to do them. It's still your time. Unless you own how you are spending your time, you'll always feel like you're a victim, like you're just a ping pong ball that other people are knocking around. Friends, it's your life. It's your time. It's your season. And you need to own it. The second point is something Kevin DeYoung says in his book titled Crazy Busy. I love that title, Crazy Busy. Not just busy, but crazy busy. So descriptive of our world. Kevin DeYoung says that one thing you need to do is to recognize what your time is doing to you. Recognize what being crazy busy is actually doing to you physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Often people parade their busyness almost as a badge of honor. Being crazy busy is really kind of a status symbol. Everyone talks about just how busy they are. But that's what's expected. How can you be a valuable human being if you're not crazy busy? But we do recognize what that mentality is doing to us. Almost everyone I know feels frazzled and overwhelmed much of the time. There are so many good people who turn into angry snapping turtles because of all the time pressure they're under. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen it, the snapping turtles. Or you've seen it happen to yourself. This bottled up anger, you don't even know where it comes from, but then you snap. So much of that is related to the crazy busy time stress we're putting on ourselves. There are many people that people who tell me that they've lost their joy in life. They get into a groove and they go through life kind of on autopilot. They feel numb. They don't feel. They just go through the motions from one event to the next, from one activity to another to another, just kind of numb. And that's how they cope with everything. So they struggle to connect with their spouse or their children or their friends. They struggle to connect with God. Often people tell me that they don't have time to read the Bible. They don't have time to be in a small group Bible study. They don't even have time to pray. And when they do finally have time, the Bible seems closed to them and they get nothing out of it. They try to pray, but the words don't come. God seems like he's moved to a different zip code. Well, here's the key. People don't want to connect that numbness with the lifestyle they're leading. They just want to throw a switch. They just want God to bless a lifestyle that's deadly to the human spirit. And God's not going to do that. They're experiencing the reality uh, that faster isn't better when it comes to our relationships with each other and with God. There's a word for this feeling. 
Not a word we use very much. The word is acedia. Acedia. A-C-E-D-I-A. It's a listlessness, a sense of being disconnected, of not caring. I don't care. How often have you heard people say that? That's acedia. A numbness towards life. And I hear acedia in the words of Solomon. I hear it today in the numbness that manifests itself in how people, when they finally do have free time, they just want to vegetate in front of the TV or a computer screen. Spend hours and hours in almost a narcotic trance doing nothing, channel surfing, binge watching. Acedia becomes a type of apathy where people can't engage with other people and can't engage with God, can't engage with their faith, can't engage with the kind of life God is calling them to live, and that's not healthy. Yeah, honestly, do you struggle with acedia? Do you know what your sense of time is doing to you? And I ask this not as someone who has reached the summit and is now throwing a rope down to all the poor souls struggling on the other side of the mountain. I struggle with this too. I'm right there on the cliff face trying to find a toehold looking for my next grip. I'm raising this issue because I want to know why life feels the way it does. Why am I the way I am? And what can I do to change? You see, I know all the time management techniques. I've been to all the seminars. I've read all the books. I could teach classes on how to manage your time. But I'm not interested in merely giving time management techniques or tips on how to set your email filter. I want to understand what's going on inside, deeper in our hearts. What motivates us to continue to do this thing that we know is deadly to the spiritual life, deadly to our spiritual balance? Why, when the motorcycle starts to wobble, do people push the accelerator and try to go faster rather than letting up, easing back or changing their pace? The third pivot point is the hardest one for me. It's to recognize that there is time to do everything God wants you to do. There's time to do everything God wants you to do. God is not the one leading us into being crazy busy. God desires for us as his children to have a sense of balance, a sense of rhythm to life, and to know the power of his presence and his peace in our hearts. There is time to do everything God wants us to do, but there isn't time to do everything everybody else wants you to do, or everything, or time to do everything you want to do. And that requires us to embrace something that has almost become a dirty world a dirty word in some Christian circles. Self-discipline. Self-discipline. Self-discipline is a part of discipleship. Not to earn your salvation by doing good deeds, no. But recognizing that following Christ involves making choices. Following Christ involves developing a good habits. Following Christ means living life in a way that's pleasing to God. Not just pursuing our own agenda and then asking God to bless it. Discipleship involves self-discipline. When it comes to our time, that means living by your priorities rather than your pressures. Living by your priorities rather than your pressures. You have to know what is really important in your life so that your time revolves around those high priority things rather than letting your week fill up with all the trivia and interruptions and distractions. Self-discipline with your time is key to success in all areas of life, but especially in developing your spiritual life and a sense of balance. You've probably heard the story of the college professor who was trying to teach his freshman class about time and self-discipline. On the first day of class, he picks up an empty glass jar and filled it with golf balls, and then asked the students if the jar was full, and they all agreed that it was. And then he picked up a box of pebbles and poured it into the jar. He shook the jar lightly, and the pebbles rolled into the spaces between the golf balls. And he then asked the students again if the jar was full, and they all agreed it was. Next, he picked up a box of sand and poured it into the jar. And of course, the sand filled up everything else. 
He once more asked if the jar was full, and the students responded unanimously, yes. So then the professor pulls out a bucket of water and pours it into the jar and said, now is it full? Yes. His point was that the jar represents life. The golf balls are the important things, the high-priority things, the things that if everything else was lost and they were the only things left, your life would still be full. Your relationship with God, family, health, and friends, the pebbles are the things that are also important, but on a smaller scale, your job, your schooling, and so on. And the sand and the water are everything else, the small stuff, the trivial, the unnecessary. Our time problems come when we put the sand and the water into the jar first. Amazingly, if you add those same elements in the reverse order, there won't be room for the golf balls. The principle being that if we focus on the trivial, our time will fill up. And then there's no time for the pebbles or the golf balls. If you spend all your time and energy on the small stuff, you'll never have room for the things that are important to you. Friends, please pay attention to what your sense of time is doing to you. Is it making your life healthier? Is it drawing you closer to Christ? Are you becoming more connected with others? Or is your motorcycle starting to wobble? Pay attention to the season of life that you are in, a time to tear down or a time to build, a time to weep or a time to laugh, a time to search, a time to give up, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to scatter, a time to gather. What season of life are you in? And then Solomon adds something powerful in verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Solomon declares a simple message of deep hope for the struggling. Enjoy life by trusting God, even when you can't understand his works or his ways. In his book, Things of Earth, Joe Rigney urges Christians to embrace your creatureliness. Don't seek to be God. Instead, embrace the glorious limitations and boundaries that God has placed on you as a character in his story, unquote. Rigney's hits at the core of Ephesians 3, rightly fearing God and enjoying his world. To fear God rightly is to remember our humanity. When we can't see around the next corner of life that's yet to come, no matter how much we want to, we remember our humanity. We remember that God is God and that we are not. He controls all things at all times and all places, and he's good. So Solomon says we're to ask God for the grace to embrace the life that we can see, the life that he has given to us, and enjoy it fully. Rigney writes, and I quote, Breathe deeply the cool air of the fall morning as you walk the dog. Slowly sip hot chocolate with your children. Work hard at the temp job as you await a permanent position. Let your hand linger with your ailing loved one. Even when we do not understand God's works and God's ways, we can delight in his good gifts to us. We can find a unique pleasure in our toil as we throw ourselves upon the rock, Jesus Christ, through the storms of life, unquote. Another writer, Jason DeRouche, aptly summarizes the tension between time, finitude, infinity, and the frustration and joy that we feel. He says, this is the goal of Ecclesiastes, that believers feeling the weight of the curse and the burden of life's enigmas would turn their eyes towards God, resting in his purposes and delighting whenever possible in the beautiful yet disfigured world. After inviting us to enjoy this life God has given, the preacher in Ecclesiastes adds one more dimension to our well-being. Verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God 
I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. When we embrace our finiteness and enjoy God and his gifts to us, we're ultimately living like God by doing good to others. We soak up the joy of life that he has given to us, and then we channel that joy to others. So what do we do with those times when life doesn't make sense to us? We face all things, the good and the bad, and the somewhere in between. We can face them with confidence because we know our God is weaving all those things together into a beautiful tapestry for our good. Even when we cannot see past our current circumstances, we walk hand in hand with our Savior on this path of life, enjoying all his gifts, the big ones and the small ones. And then we do good to others by inviting them to do the same. The goal for our present then is not grasping the moment as it passes or trying to see clearly now what God is doing in every tune. The goal for our present moment, though seen dimly for, for what it is, is faith. Mm -hmm. Believing that the God who was and will be is always the God who is with us, helping us, working in us, kind of moving us towards a beautiful end. And God has designed us to comprehend and value the true beauty of his work, most significantly over time. As an artist pulls the cover off a portrait in dramatic reveal, as the hiker's perspective of where she's traveled comes into view as she steps to the mountain peak, one day we will see the full scope and beauty of our redemption. One day we will see the beauty of all our lives unraveled mess tied together in a beautiful tapestry. One day we will see the scope and beauty of our redemption in full. We do not need to see or understand all that God is doing on our hardest days. We just need to know that God is behind this and in this and that he will make it beautiful in time. Think on this phrase. Every hard day will be beautiful someday. Let me say that again as a summary of today's podcast. Every hard day will be beautiful someday. Hope you have a great week. Take care.